Record. So you've got me as a panelist, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I can give you. You need. What we'll do. Um. Um. Uh, um. Everybody's muted, and and I'll record it with the speaker view, so only you and whoever's speaking will be the main view. Um. You need. You need. Um. Control the screen for anything. For, yes. Okay. I'll give you that. Let me switch view here first. I need complete Swatantria. Yes. Okay. Let me do that here. Which do I think it has to be in speaker view in order to get a good recording. Participants. I've made you the host. Okay. Do you tell me when uh, when we oh, should so, start? George, I'm going to record, but I'm going to. You'll have to give me because now you're the host. You'll have to give me permission to record. Okay. Let me I see. If I can allow recording. Okay. Let me open this a few a brief. Om stapakaya chadadamasya sarvadadamasarupine avatadavarishtai ramakrishnayate namaha om jalanim sharadam devim ramakrishnam jagatkurum. Parapadme to your street bar, Pranamami, Muhud Muhur, Badrakali Namonyatam, Saraswatya Namonamaha, Veda Piranga Vedanta, Vijastana Epesha, Sri Ganesha, Sharada, Guru Vyo Namaha. So, very happy um, to continue at our Devi Gita classes. Um, this will be our last class for at least a month, as some Ambikan and myself will be traveling. So, this is a really nice special class. Last week, we read uh, two verses. We were on chapter two of the Devi Bhagavatam, and we read the last two, uh, verse nine and 10, where the Divine Mother is describing various views of Maya. And the topic being discussed is why ontological topics of like, why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there many things instead of one thing? And if there's many things, what are those many things? What is this Jeev Jagat? Are they real? What are they? You know, so this is the topic being discussed. And she describes a list of all kinds of views of Maya. The Maya is this, Maya is austerity, Maya is knowledge, Maya is darkness, Maya is inert, Maya is all kinds of nature, is Pakriti, is, is all kinds of things. And then she kind of some stops by mentioning two main schools, or two very different ways of looking at Maya, of the one becoming many. And she mentions that the those who are experts in the in the in the in the Shaivite Shastra, the scripture, the Shaivite scriptures, describe her. Actually, the translation uses it, uh, meaning Maya, but actually the term is her. Those describe her as Vimarsha, and and those who study the essence of the Veda, the Vedantas, um, uh, uh, describe it as ignorance, as powerful ignorance or all pervading ignorance, avidya, right? So those are two very distinct definitions ignorance and vimarsha and well and last week with my own very limited knowledge of both vedanta and tantra shaivai tantra we gave a kind of a introductory way to grasp these two main ideas but i was unsatisfied and because of the sophistication of the shaivai tantric view is so sophisticated and, and the vedic view has been well presented by so many teachers for the last hundred years 
right? So if if you need more clarification of that, that's available online through so many lectures and texts. But I think the the uh, Shaivai, especially the Kashmir Shaivite system, which I think this verse is commenting on, it says the Shaivai, those Shaivite Shastras that describe it as Vimarsha, that not every Shaivite school describes it as Vimarsha. This is the monistic Shaivism of Kashmir that describes Maya as Vimarsha. That's a specialty, one of the specialties of the school, as far as I understand. What, but what I understand of it comes from George, right? Our speaker today, our guest. And he's a disciple of Swami Lakshmanju. Many of you have heard of him. We've mentioned him many, many times here. And he was the uh, the, uh, you could say maybe the last, maybe not the final, but the most recent great master of Kashmir Shaivism, a great uh, uh, unprecedented scholar, unchallengeable scholar, but as, as also a, a realized saint, or maybe even more. And the reason Kali Mandir is, is aligned to Kashmir Shaivism is because Usha in 1991, I think is when, when Swamiji came, 1991, 92, something, uh, Swamiji came to America. I think only one time towards the end of his life and Usha met him um, and spent, she was visiting him every weekend for about three months when he was here in Los Angeles. And that's when she met George. So Usha has known George for 32, 33 years. I met George when I met Usha. I just miss Ami Lakshmanju. It's my great misfortune, right? I met Usha 30 years ago, 31 years ago. So I think I just she was on fire telling me stories from Ilakshaju when I first met Usha, the saints that she'd met, and this is the most recent. And she says it was, I mean, one of her details, she says that rereading the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, somebody in ecstasy, what ecstasy looks like, right? But she's never seen it until she saw Swami Lakshmanju dancing in ecstasy. And she said now she saw what it what it looked like, what it act in real life, not just in a book, what it described, an actual ecstatic, a real ecstatic personality. Um so Swami, so George has been um, um, uh, with Swamiji's attendant, and he has spent many, many years uh, through the Kashmir, uh, uh, Shaiv, uh, uh, what is it, Swami, now it's the Lakshmanju Academy, started as a Universal Shaivite Fellowship, um, bringing out uh, with John Denise Hughes and that and the association there, bringing out very authentic um, um, commentaries of the scriptures by Swami Lakshmanju. The work that will be, I think, will be the basis of scholarship and sadhana for hundreds of thousands, maybe thousands of years, this the, this work that they're doing. It's really impressive and incredible. And so, and he's in he's at Swami Lakshmanju's ashram now in Srinagar, right? And Swami Ambikan and myself are will be joining him shortly in a few days, next couple of weeks. About two weeks, I think, we'll be there. So we're very excited. So um uh so George, if you, so our topic is Vimarsha. And how you want to present it and help us understand this as an is a, a, a different and sophisticated, maybe even an alternate way of understanding the phenomenon of Maya and Jeev Jagat. Okay, I'll I'll share my screen. I'll start also with a mantra that um, Swamiji gave before he left this world. And this is a mantra to the Agora Shaktis. Nothing to do with Agoris. <laughs> In India, but the Agora Shakti, the three main devies of of the whole of creation, which come out of the state of Shiva, these are these are the essence of Vimarsha Vimarsha Shakti. So let me share my screen and make sure we're, we're on the same page here. Uh, okay, I can get rid of that and tell me when you can see that. We we can see it. 
Okay, so I'll recite this uh, this mantra, and okay. Om Agore Hebio Tagore Bio Gore Gore Taribyascha Sarvata Sarva Sarvebio Namaste Rudra Rupebia Agore Bio Tagore Bio Gore Gore Taribyascha Sarvata Sharva Sarvebio Namaste Rudra Rupebia Agorebio Tagorebio Gore Gore Taribyascha Sarvata Sharva Sarvebio Namaste Rudra Rupebia O Lord Shiva, you alone transform yourself into all forms into the forms of the powers of Rudra as Agora, the enlightening and uplifting energy, Goratari, the frightening, darkening energy which pushes one down, and Gora, the energy which keeps one fixed, neither rising or falling. These forms embodied in Rudra Shiva are helpful to aspirants while they are aware and frightful for the ones who are ignorant, pushing them down and down. It just comes to mind there's a beautiful a verse on, on Kali in the form of Chanda. Um, Mahagoreshwari Chanda, Shristi Samhara Karika, Trivaham Trividam Tristam, Balat Kalam Prakashati. I won't go into any um, thing on that. We'll get we'll get with our uh, topic here, which is the verse which. Uh, Swami Bhajanananda sent to me, and this is the this is the verse in question. Vimasha iti tamprahu shaiva shahastra visharada avidyamitare prahu vedatahadvarta chintaka. So those verses in Shaiva scriptures for Shaivites declare her to be Vimarsha reflective awareness. While those who contemplate the doctrines of the Vedas, Veda, Vedantins, uh, and that's a very wide um, class of philosophy, uh, declare her to be powerful avidya or ignorance. Now, um, in Kashmir Shaivism, the way Vimarsha is explained is uh, first you have to understand that in Kashmir Shaivism, uh, the reason that they've gone into minute detail about this mechanics of how creation came out is they've they've discovered or they've looked under the magnifying glass and it's, they've found that above Purusha, which is the twenty five tattva, twenty fifth tattva, and considered to be the the uh, highest tattva in most other systems, but they discovered another eleven tattvas. And this has been there since the beginning of, of the literature, the, the Tantras and the Agamas of Shaivism. So I thought it would be nice to, to show this in chart formation, um, where you have at the highest level, the state of Paramashiva, five universal energies. And in Kashmir Shaivism, there's always this state of five, the pentad of five energies, five pranas, five datus, uh, five Mahabhutas, it goes all the way, but the, the source of all of those, uh, you know, groups of five 
comes out of the state of Paramashiva. And Paramashiva is, is Chit Shakti, consciousness, Ananda Shakti, bliss, Icha Shakti, will, Jnana Shakti, all knowledge, and Kriya Shakti, all action. But those five things are in a state of total, total oneness. There's not, one isn't higher than the other. They're all submerged in this great ocean of the consciousness of Paramashiva. And what happens in that is that, that something stirs within that ocean and rises up and looks back at itself. And that is the Vimarsha Shakti. That is the reflective awareness in which Shiva rises up through Shakti. Now we're talking about, you know, that they're inseparable, but here there seems to be a separation, but there isn't. And once that Vimarsha rises up, then you get a slight lessening and you come to the five pure uh, or called Shuddha Tattvas. So this now becomes Shiva, Shakti, Sadashiva, Ishra, and Shuddha And each one of these has the same all-pervading qualities, but one is predominant. In Shiva, consciousness is predominant. In Shakti, bliss is predominant. In Sadashiva, will or Icha Shakti is predominant. In Ishvara, the 33rd Tattva, knowledge is predominant. And the other four are all there, but in a subsided or a subordinate form. And Shuddha is Kriya Shakti. So what happens? These are pure states. And in Kashmir Shaivism, these are the, these are the, these three especially are the state of creation, protection and destruction. Shakti and Shiva take a really specific role of, of grace and hiding grace, <laughs> or uh, it's called, you know, um, Anugraha and Tirodhana or Leia, like how, how, how have we gotten hidden in the world? And in, in terms of this verse, what has happened in order for Shiva and Shakti to to want to come down into the universe, there has to be some kind of magic because an ocean can't become a drop. We're all the drops. <laughs> we have Ma, we have Shiva, we have Shakti. They're all one and the same. We have them all in our heart expressing themselves through our life. But our life, uh, if we don't feel that universality, we're in the state of Jiva. So Maya plays an important role here. Maya is just uh, the mirror which reflects these five pure energies to come down. So, and this is this is where Vimarsha is becoming more and more concrete. This this reflective awareness, uh, reflecting upon ourself, or Shiva reflecting upon himself. First, there's the stepping down slightly to Sada Shiva Ishra and Shuddha once Maya comes into the into the field, then all of the tattvas below that, and remember, I, I'm showing here that Purusha, the 25th tattva, is the highest of most other systems. These 11 tattvas are unique to, to Kashmir Shaivism. You won't find them in, you'll find them in some other texts that have gleaned things many thousands of years ago from, from uh, the Shaiva Shastras of Kashmir, but you'll rarely have any talk about kanchukas, which means coverings. And, and how this happens, I'm just going to 
you go right down to the bottom of this chart to show that that these five pure super pure energies of Paramashiva reflect through Swatantra Shakti, which is Maya. Swatantra Shakti and Maya are one and the same thing. Only Maya is always moving downwards into the world, and Swatantra Shakti can move both ways. Okay, so what happens is this reflection in the mirror. When you look in a mirror, your right ear becomes your left ear. The image in the mirror is reversed. And this is exactly what happens in the state of Shiva and Shakti willing themselves to, to come through Maya and into the world and limit themselves so that they can play in the world. So this all-pervading consciousness now becomes Nityata or Chit Shakti becomes Nityata, limited space. We live in limited space and time. The all bliss, the, which is Nityata, the, the Sanskrit word to describe the, what these, the, the aspects of these states is Vyapakata, all pervading, becoming limited space. Nityata, eternal, becoming limited time, Kala. Purnatva, fullness, of, of Icha Shakti becoming limited attachment, Raga. All knowledge, which is Sarvagyatra, becoming Vidya, limited knowledge. And Kriya, Sarvakatritva, all action, because in the state of Shiva and Shakti, the universe is, is in, in universal action. But going through the state of Maya with the help of Swatantriya Shakti, and the, the, the condensing of this Vimarsha Shakti, this reflective awareness on, on the state of our own I-ness, we come down to the state of limited action. But you have to remember that the I-ness is always there in the background. And we don't reflect on, on the all-pervadingness of our I-ness, but wherever you are right now, you say, I'm here. And wherever you were yesterday, you say, oh, I was there. <laughs> and no matter where you were, the I aspect of your own life is, is always pervading. So in, in Kashmir Shaivism, it's very important to understand that when, when Shiva and Shakti decided within themselves to, to come down into the world through this Maya Shakti, um, they didn't separate themselves. Uh, in Kashmir Shaivism, Maya Shakti is also known as Yoni Bila. The Yo and everybody knows what the term Yoni means. It's, it's, the, it's where we take birth and we're thrown out into the world. The difference is in a human birth, we're separated, we're severed from our mother. But in the universal state, Shiva and Shakti only appear to be separated because that's the play. They lose themselves within us, within our life, and and we we live in a limited limited world, and it's it's it is for play in Kashmir Shaivism. In the best way that I could describe this, this question came up a real lot in one of our meetings, was for us to understand that this precaution vimarsh. Shiva and Shakti, the, the, the energies within Paramashiva, which became Shiva and Shakti, the, the tattvas of 36th and 35th, consciousness and bliss, 
has flown down through the world and this this we could say this umbilical cord universal umbilical cord <laughs> which has gone through maya <clears throat> has got to the level of producing us as purusha and prakriti i'm not saying this is not a separation of male and female this is just to dis to know that that we live in the world at the level of purusha the limited jiva and we're played by prakriti and and whereas shiva and shakti's universe is is the universe itself it's the totality of everything for us the totality of our everything is is everything that we've done and known in our own limited space and time but there's no separation and prana actually the word here should be pranana shakti pranana the energy of breath is what has flown out from shiva and shakti and from a point we breathe in prana which in our bodies becomes the five pranas and that's our that's our life so life force is called pranana shakti and we draw that from the time we take our first breath until the time we leave this world and so in in kashmir show one has to understand that that maya who has created this illusion that we're limited inside of our own world Maya is just the energy of, of Shiva and Shakti together to limit themselves down to the level of just what we say, Pashu Baba, limited individual, or we, we call ourselves beast. You know, Shiva is also known as Pashupati, <laughs> the father of beasts. But there's no separation there. And anybody on the spiritual path what has happened to them, anybody who joins the spirit, any spiritual path, something has happened inside of you where Shiva and Shakti in the form of whatever, Ma has woken up and, and now you're possessed with this idea, I must know what's going on. And that takes the form of reading a book, doing yoga, changing my diet, whatever it is, all of these are steps towards just understanding our own nature, our own self. And th that's the role of Maya to, to keep us down in the world. And the Swatantra Shakti, the energy of Maya, which can lift us up, is that energy which reveals to us our own nature. It reveals our own self. And Swamiji, Swamiji was very attracted to Usha because in Kashmir Shaivism, Kali, takes a very, very important role. She, in Kashmir Shaivism, she's called Mahabhairava Gora Ugra Chandakali. She has all those names, but in essence, she's uh, Kalasan Karshani Kali. She's the essence of Lord Shiva that draws all time and space into herself. And that's why you have the depiction of Kali dancing on Shiva. Shiva has nothing else to do then. Like I said, here in these tattvas, Shiva is all space and time, Vyapakata, all pervading. And Kali, Ananda Shakti, bliss, is Nichita. She's eternal time. And she throws out time into the world, so we become limited in time. That was the verse that I recited. Mahagoreshvari Chanda, Shristi Samhara Karika, Trivaham Trividam, Trishtam. Trishtam means she's all three aspects of time, past, present, and future. 
And that's where we're caught in this 24 hour cycle. But the more you meditate and by your own grace, when you go into deeper states of meditation, time takes on a whole different uh, meaning paradigm. And that's Ma in charge of time opening up within us to show us that you know, this 24 hours is really limited. There's a whole other realm of time that goes spread, stretches out and out and out to universal time. And I think I have one more chart here. Oh, no, that was it. This is, this is Swami Lakshman Jew. This was his master. Swami Mahatapka. That's the painting that Claudia is doing. And this was his Paramaguru, uh, Swami Rama. So, um, I can probably stop sharing the screen here and hope we haven't gone over time. Um, oh, there's Swami Ambikananda. He's already at the Ganges. Okay. Good. Um, so that's, that's the essence of what Maya is about in Kashmir Shaivism in a nutshell. And I went through those verses and there was, um, I mean, there was a few of the verses mentioned Chaitanya and, um, about 850, uh, George, you know, can you, can you put your video back on? We can't see you. Okay. Nothing to see there. Okay. Let me see. There oh, I am. There you are. Thank you. Sir. Thank you. I'm actually talking. It's not a recording. <laughs> okay. The, the drivers are still intact. Good. Good. <laughs> They've kept their, oh yes. I, I forgot that. That was terrible of me to show visuals while they're driving. But uh, this is recorded and you send it out to people anyway, I think. Claudia definitely wanted a recording. So, so what I've tried to do is just give you an understanding of Maya from the Shaiva point of view. And uh, I was just saying that about 11 kilometers from here, and if we have time, we'll do that. We'll go and sit on Shiva rock. There's a rock here, which is about as big as a house where um, more than a thousand years ago, Lord Shiva appeared to a one of his sincere devotees and the devotee was perturbed because the, the Shaiva philosophy was, was disintegrating. It was just disappearing very quickly. And Shiva said, don't worry, go to the stream. There's a rock there. And on that rock, I've inscribed my Shiva sutras. This is what Shiva told him. And he went there and he found this big rock, but he couldn't see anything written on it. And he was kind of dejected and he just leaned on the rock thinking, you know, oh, well, I wonder maybe the dream wasn't real. And as soon as he touched the rock, this whole rock just turned up like that. And underneath were inscribed the Shiva Sutras. And he memorized them, you know, in those days he memorized them and he produced them in a book called the Shiva Sutras. And then he wrote two commentaries or he wrote a commentary on that called Spandakarikas. So the first, the first Sutra that Shiva gave, was Chaitanya Mahatma. Everything is made of consciousness. And the second sutra was Jnanam Bandha, which is where the whole idea about ignorance or avidya comes in. Jnanam Bandha can be seen two ways. Our limited knowledge which we have in the world binds us. And not knowing unlimitedly also binds us. So having limited knowledge which is everything, everything we've learned since we were kids, you know, A for apple, uh, B for ball, C for cat, you know, um, everything we've learned, we now have superimposed in the background of our awareness. And we no longer see things for what they are. We see things and we name them. 
children up to that age of learning that they see things in the most pure way they just there's no differentiation for young children before they learn to speak and articulate especially for elevated children and they you know they 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 can continue this even when they're learning but once once we imbibe ourselves with the idea of limited knowledge we think we think we know we think we know everything we know we read a book and we go wow i really know that oh kashmir shaivism yeah i've done that i read a book on that now i'll do vedanta or now i'll do karma mimanta yeah i read that i've done that um but actually that knowledge is always changing and always fragmented and it always shifts because you always find there's something new to to learn when you read the, the, the Devi Bhagavatam, you can read it once and the second time you read it, it, it means so much more. The third time, again, you're just finding all of these gems coming out. And that knowledge is moving you towards, it's expanding your awareness to a state where you realize that, that hold on, there's a state of universal knowledge where I could know everything. And that's when you go beyond Vikalpa. That's when you, you no longer think thought. So you no longer think in differentiated uh, in the way of differentiated perception, it's where your perception changes and you see the underlying uh, reality of everything, which is the Vimarsha Shakti, you know, the energy behind all knowledge. So um, I don't think I could say much more about that. The rest is up to experience. Yeah. We, it's 8.04. AM here, so that means we've been going for only half hour. We have we go till here. It's we go hour, hour and a half to our whatever it, it needs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and also, I'm sure some devotees here, some of the students may have some questions. But I some I I am um, with the kind of the more. Of course, you mentioned when you say Vedanta, you mean there's many schools of thought that that are that are underneath the the term Vedanta. Right, yes. um, uh, and Vedanta more or less being the tradition of the Upanishads and its interpretation, right? And but the 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 form of Vedanta that's been privileged in the, in the more recent time and the Western world is probably Advaita Vedanta, right? Yes. And it has a view that this Maya that's identified as Vimarsha in the Tantra Tantric and Shaivite systems is seen as is is just described as Agyana ignorance, right? Yes. And and then it's and then it's. Uh, and then looking at its qualities of not being having not being eternal being changing not being uh, not being independent you know yes. shankara gives a few categories of what it means to be real right it does yes. not it does not meet the category of realness and therefore yes. it is therefore not only is it is it the result of ignorance right but it's also not true right yes. and so i think i mean that's it's a profound um perception and an understanding of reality but it percol it, it can percolate in some people it percolates down into their regular thinking in a very unsatisfying way or confusing way where now this world is unreal and nothing nothing matters you know and and everything is downplayed and so and i know in some of the in the indian theistic schools or the more overtly theistic schools uh, some of the dualistic theistic schools they would hold that there you know you have god ishwara right so the reality is ishwara plus his innumerable shaktis his energies right so that it's not like ishwara and and all his energies really energies are just the energies of ignorance that make us yes. see something that's not there but but back they are his energies and that i think is very satisfying the devotional tradition has a very satisfying view 
but it still seems to make the energies are still different from the energetic right you still yeah. so the energy is like the god's creation it, we see it oh it's it's real in a certain sense it's god the reality is god and his creation but it's different than god right and so even this more set i mean if if this view is more satisfying to some of us it's more satisfying it still has a a flaw right a potential flaw of making making a a, a hard distinction uh, uh, between god and the world and therefore us us and god us in the world god and us you know that whole god in the world that 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 duality is very harsh right and uh, um so i think it, uh, this idea of maya being redefined right as, as being able to explain a real world right of yes. course but a changing world not a, that they have to i think we have to loosen the definition of reality to not being necessarily unchanging so uh, Sri Ramakrishna would probably call it a real yet changing world right yeah. mm. but how do you make that real and changing world including us still not really separated from god from god right even if it exists maybe we really exist but how is it not separated from god i think the kashmir system is giving some hint to this yeah but the, the, the main what you've what you've just described the, the basis of what you've described in those traditions is neti neti you know uh, nothing is real give up the world and the, the one of the main core differences between kashmir shaivism and almost all other systems is this idea of renunciation you know renunciation and for for centuries that was felt in in india that um as a householder you can go to the temple you can get the priest to do a whole bunch of pujas for you and yagyas and that's what will bring you liberation in the end but but you're outside of you're outside of that that's way above your pay grade um and you you just have to be at the mercy of of the system and that's why you know the whole the whole renunciate tradition has been so respected in india and revered and kashmir shaivism uh, but fell into that thing uh, after i mean kashmir shaivism in this particular era in the beginning of kali yuga started 5000 years ago and durvasa rishi who was krishna's guru or one of krishna's gurus durvasa rishi he was given the charge by lord shiva to uh, be the custodian of shaivism in its three forms the monistic shaivism monodualistic shaivism and the dual so it's so the shaiva tantras the shaiva agamas and, and and various texts and the shaiva like puranas you know because shaivism but in the beginning he couldn't find any students he couldn't find anybody that he could give this knowledge to so he had to create mind-born children <laughs> triambakanatha uh, Amardakanata and Srinata to, to handle each of these different systems. And then uh, Triambakanata, he also couldn't uh, find anybody capable. So he created a mind-born son and he created a mind-born daughter, very important. He created Arda Triambaka, half, you know, ha Arda, half of Triambaka. And she was given the most, the purest, highest tradition. And that tradition still exists today, Swamiji said, but very secretly. And this went down for 15 generations of mind-born, you know, children. And then, and then somewhere along that way, it got lost. It went underground and um, the Pancharata system, the Vaishnava system became very prominent in Kashmir. And you couldn't, you couldn't evolve without going to the temple and doing rituals. 
And Vasugupta, the one I talked about before, the Shiva Sutras, he said, no, no, this feels wrong. You know, Chaitanya, you know, consciousness is everywhere. I should be able to get enlightened or Jivan Mukta in my home. And he prayed to Shiva and Shiva came back and said, okay, let's put the train back on the tracks. I'll give you the Shiva Sutras. And that was the start of what was called Kashmir Shaivism. And Kashmir Shaivism became predominantly a householder tradition. There was no restriction. You didn't have to renounce. There was no neti neti. The world, as we pointed out, that, that was created by Shiva and Shakti and them coming down into the world, the world was designed as a commentary of God consciousness, how God consciousness has flown into the world. That's pretty hard to take when you're in a traumatic situation. You know, a, a person dies around you or, you, you know, you, you've, You've lost your, your house is burnt down in the Malibu fires, you know what to do. But actually, the truth is, is, is the first experience. Swami Lakshmi tells us the first experience that happens when a yogi or a yogini achieves the state of moksha, jivan mukta. The first realization comes is that it was always there. And the second realization comes is everything up to that point in this lifetime and the memory comes, he said, of, of, at least the clear memory comes of the last three lifetimes. Everything was perfect. Everything was leading up to this point. The trauma, the happiness, the joy, the sadness. You know, as the Gita says, you know, the Dresha Adresha, Karma Krod, uh, Lob, um, you know, greed and, and, and this uh, Kroda, anger, all of those, all of those emotions are there within us so that's our internal world but they're not separated from from god consciousness if we if we if we keep trying to separate those things then we're on a path of i i can do this if i just if i just clean up my act you know if i just start jogging i'm going to be you know much better or whatever and swamiji says that the real essence is uh is surrender if you surrender to Ma, if you surrender to Shiva, if you surrender to whoever you're, then everything will start to unfold in front of you automatically. But it has to be real surrender, not not 50%. Surrender with conditions doesn't work. I'm going to surrender, but I want this, this, this. These are the first five, uh, you know, rewards I want from my total surrender. That's not total. (laughs) Anyway, so I think the main difference is this idea of of uh, renouncing renouncing the world as opposed to enjoying the world. Now, this is a very important point. Enjoying the world with awareness, not just saying, "Okay, everything is Shiva. I can do whatever I want. No problem. You know, I can I can be good. I can be bad. I'm not going to be responsible for my actions. As long as you feel that you're acting, as long as you feel that there's differentiation between me and other bodies, you're responsible for every action that you do, you know, but the grace keeps unfolding. And the, and the ultimate thing in Kashmir Shaivism is, you know, because every nowadays everybody wants a guru. But Swami Lakshmi would say the ultimate guru is within yourself. And the ultimate guru is that part of yourself which decides that what I'm saying is correct or doesn't make sense. Or what Swami Bhajanananda says, that makes sense but this is i'm not sure about this how do you know you're not sure about that that's the guru in you continually directing you on your own spiritual path 
that is is completely in line with with what is is right for you at that time and that continually change. it's called tarka in uh, sanskrit it's called it's called your own transcendental logic and we have it all the time it's there it's 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 attached to our intellect and it's attached to the, the term you know ritambara pragyan or pratibha that that flash of intuition that we always get when we know something's right or something's wrong that's the guru and that is basically you know ma or shiva or shakti whichever way you see it opening up in your heart and expanding the space and time in which you're living and softening the hard edges of your life <laughs> you know that's this is this is a this is kashmir shaivism and i um I have such a long relate. When you were talking about the old times with Usha, uh, when when Usha lived in a flat in uh, in Laguna Beach, and and Ma had arrived, she had to go to India for two weeks, and she phoned me up. She said, "George, could you come and look after Ma for two weeks?" I said, "Sure, Usha, that's fine." So I went to her flat. The unfortunate thing in that flat, there was nowhere where you could sit with your legs outstretched because there was a picture. Uh, the wall, there was a picture every half an inch apart on the wall. So everywhere you were sitting, your feet were pointing towards a deity. So I called Lucia and said, how do I sleep? Do I sleep standing up? What do I do? You know, and she said, oh. <laughs> you look at the bedroom, it's fine. That's a, That was a wonderful time. That's when I met Swami uh, Bajanananda at the Hare Krishna restaurant. So I, I have a long association with Usha and with, uh, with Kali Ma and, uh, and all of the Kali kids from those days. And we've had great, great fun with our havens when uh, Swami Bhajanananda and Ambikananda and a few other devotees would come for Swamiji's Mahasamadhi and uh, perform the havens and very joyous time in those, uh, the, the 90s and uh, early 2000s. I moved a little bit away from the thing. Any people have questions that I would attempt? I, I, can, to... I want to ask one more question, just because either things yes. that that are common. I, I've heard this as a critique to the Kashmir system, right? And and um, um, from many many years ago, but I, it never left my mind as a as a one of the critiques that is sometimes given. Um, and I think I've even discussed it with you many many years ago. And I remember, I don't exactly remember the clearest point of your answer i remember the gist of your answer but is that you know it's like in the there's i think three upanishads that have this term what is it um um bahusham praja yayati or something like you know i am one that let, let me become many you know i um um he desired to become many or, or to um um be born and and start the process of creation how the one starts the process of creation and that in order to make sense of this, you have to you have to ascribe a sankalpa, right? A desire to Brahman or to the absolute. In in our system, maybe Padma Shiva, but in the Vedantic system, Brahman, right? And and some people say that that is attributing something that Brahman can't have. He cannot have a second. He cannot have. There's nothing second for it. Uh, uh, for it to cause desire, right? Nothing for uh, uh, nothing. Um, so and I know. Part of the, I think I remember your point is this, it all hinges on this Patantriya idea as, this, uh, as, a, as a way of justifying. I think if I remember, we can opportunity to elucidate. I think you use the example of a child playing, 
if a child plays, it plays out of its own nature, not necessarily because it's lacking something or there's another, right? And someone had to justify that, but it seems to be an important point that 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 goes to the one of one of I mean, there's the systems, the the, the scholars and experts of the systems have nuanced the distinctions and their arguments a little bit better. But I remember yes. this is one of the ones that 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 that's it's it's an easy zinger. People say that and they think, oh, we've defeated the system or something like that. But it, it can't. It seems too cheap of a, of, of a hit, right? That seems to be more nuanced than that. You can describe how if she if Shiva does the the, the Shiva in his fivefold aspect, then becomes the five pure aspects of that that cascading down into creation as us and everything. Why? Why does and why can and why would he do this? Is the question and still be the absolute and one without a second? The, the, the question, the real question is: is 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 Shiva? Is there some sense of incompleteness in which he has to come out of that state in order to get complete again? You know, the, uh, this is a like a shrinking down. But Kashmir Shaivism describes it in a, in a very different way, in that. Um, in the state of Paramashiva, when Vimarsha starts to move, the the bliss, the intense bliss of that recognition of universal I-ness is so overwhelming, it spills over. It just spills over into the world. It isn't that Shiva had to there was no way to contain the intensity of that bliss, which is the, like it's like stirring the ocean into these mammoth waves the and they had to crash and, and it's a clashing it's you know it's called a sangata between shiva and shakti or a yamala this is the the divine union where shiva and shakti realize their universality and it's so intensely blissful it spills out now the second point there is is that then people ask the question but okay it spills out into shiva tattva i can accept Shakti Tattva. What, what about Icha Tattva? Icha, Icha, which is related to the state of Sadashiva. What about Icha? Icha means will. So why at that universal level would Shiva have desire? Because will is tr roughly translated or one translate, literally translated as desire. And Swamiji was amazing in his, his knowledge of things of the Western world sometimes. He said, it's like this. And there was a married couple there. He says, when you got married, he said, you desired your wife. Is that correct? They said, yes, yes. He said, but what happened when you went to the church? What did the priest say? He said, do you accept this woman as your, you know, lawfully wedded wife? And do you accept this man as your awfully wedded husband? I mean, lawfully, sorry, slip of the tongue. Now, Swamiji said that word acceptance in Sanskrit is called Abhubhagama. And Abhinavagupta has said that Icha Shakti, the first impulse of Shiva and Shakti to come out of themselves, is not by any desire or will. It's an acceptance. It's an acceptance of their own universality to flow down into the world for the sake of play, like you said, a young kid. So the, the idea that there was something lacking but within that, within that, um, and in that chart, which I'll share with you, I'll send you a copy of that chart. You can share that chart with anybody. In that, I didn't go into detail, but the the state of 
Shuddhavidya, Ishvara, and Sadashiva, there is a, a limiting factor called um, Anavamala. Anavamala, the prime mala, or the, the prime, mala means dirt, but it also means limitation. The prime limitation, because what, what they said was that in order for Shiva and Shakti to move down in the world, the only way they can do it is to have this will but their, their desires now have to become limited looking in the opposite direction of Shiva and Shakti. They have to start looking into the world. So the moment there's a shrinking down and a feeling of limitation within Sadashiva, the next thing that happens is Sadashiva goes, oh, I have to fill this gap. I have to fill this, this I, I feel this limitation. Sadashiva could turn around and go straight back to Shiva and Shakti and go, no, I'm full. I don't have to go anywhere. But what happens through this play of moving down, this jnana shakti comes up and this knowledge comes of how, how I can fulfill this desire. Oh, I can fulfill this if I do this. But doing hasn't happened yet. So kriya shakti has to come into play that I can act and I can do that. And then you move through maya and you find that you're forever trying to fill up yourself. You're ever, forever trying to expand your limited boundaries. You're forever trying to, to beat time. You're forever getting attached to things because the little things in the world seem to, if I just have a new car, I'm going to be completely fulfilled. <laughs> and after you have the new car for six months, it's the same as your old car, you know? And, and this, these, what Swamiji calls imitations of bliss, imitations of bliss are the, are the mechanics of how Shiva and Shakti keep themselves in the world. And he says, the greatest imitation of bliss is sex. And if it wasn't, there'd be nobody here today, right? If it wasn't the number one sport on the planet, the planet would be, would have half its population and Bill Gates would be happy, you know? So <laughs> sorry about that. Don't go into politics. <laughs> um, so this idea of, of a sense of lacking, a sense of incompleteness is, is just uh, there for the sake of uh, moving in the opposite direction of God consciousness, moving out of God consciousness. And that Ramana Maharshi, the great saint of South India, he said a beautiful thing. He said, he said, Shiva and Shakti live in you as you. Okay, how nice is that? Your life is complete in whichever way it is, they live in you as you. And we all have this grandiose idea. I know when I first started meditating, when I was 18 years old, I, and I got the idea of, of, of enlightenment, I thought, oh, one day I'm going to be this enlightened being with light shining out of every pore of my body. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have thousands of disciples and I'll be like Maharishi or something. All these illusions of grandeur. But Ramana Maharshi says, no, hold on a second. You are already Shiva before you had all those ideas, just be in a state of being instead of becoming. But we're always becoming. We can't help it. It's just the nature of, uh, of these Goratari Shaktis who push us into the world. Maya keeps playing us into the world, but it's not, it's not an illusion. It's, it's the play of, of Shiva and Shakti to keep themselves limited in our lives, in our limited lives, but to play and open up within each of us this idea that, hold on, I, I can 
I can realize my true nature. I can realize my divinity. You know, I can realize that I'm, I'm, I'm teeming with these wonderful shaktis, these wonderful energies, infinite energies, because I'm a macro, I'm a microcosm of this whole macrocosm. It's a really beautiful concept. I mean, when I came to Kashmir after studying Vedanta and, uh, you know, all the six systems for a number of years, for 10 years with Maharishi and doing the Vedic science courses. And I, I walked into the ashram and I met Swami Lakshmanju for the first time. It was like this, this just wave of freshness that, that came over me. Hmm. And the feeling was he didn't want to own me in any way, shape or form. He only wanted me to realize the dignity of my own nature, my own reality. I remember walking down the road the first time when I left the ashram, I felt so full and complete. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain that sitting for half an hour with a master and just having a cup of tea and not much transpiring between us, although there were some great moments in that, but just having this feeling of fullness and completeness, um, it was quite amazing. It was quite amazing. Because mm -hmm. his idea was make you realize who you are. Don't be dependent on me. I'll, I'll show you the way. I'll give you the text to read. I'll tell you what suits for you. I'll give you a, a mantra. I'll do this. But at the end of the day, you're going to realize that all of that was just, they were just guides along the path. And in the end, you're going to realize, wow, I always was Shiva. And then somebody asked Swamiji, he says, so Swamiji, when I get enlightened, and he said, hold on a second. Actually, so I'll tell you the truth. He said, you don't get enlightened. Because by the time you reach Shiva and Mukti, you have gone and Shiva and Shakti have now made themselves apparent to themselves. Mm -hmm. So he said, no individual gets enlightened. Only Shiva and Shakti draw themselves back out of the state of our play of ignorance, back into the pure tattvas mm -hmm. where they realize, yeah, we, we, we did that and it was all perfect. And now we can enjoy our bliss again of, of universality. I hope that makes a bit of sense. Yeah, very much so. Thank you. That's beautifully, beautifully said. I'm sure maybe if anybody has any questions or comments, you can click yourself in or if you can give some, if, if there's anybody. Something. I've just got to go. Somebody keeps knocking. I have a sign there which says uh, webinar in progress, but they, many of the people speak Hindi who can't read that. And uh, okay. uh, let me just let me just yeah, see yeah. who's. Yes. Okay. No problem. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Ravinda. No problem. No, no, no. Just, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Yes. Uh, my, oh, Michael, my Michael, you had a question? Yes, thank you. So, um, when you say that, um, uh, you know, the, the guru in me is continually directing me in my own spiritual path, and excuse me for making it about me, um, does that apply? only if somebody's fully surrendered or does that apply if somebody is has any type of spiritual striving or inclination or does that apply to everyone all the time i would say everyone all the time there's a beautiful chapter in a in a text called tantra loka 
Now, Tantra Loka, Tantra Aloka means shedding light. And you have to understand the word Tantra means a system of knowledge. You know, if you Google Tantra, you'll get 36 million hits on the word Tantra. And if you Google Tantric sex, you'll get 72 million hits because, you know, it's, it's, it's a hot topic these days. Uh, but the word Tantra Aloka, Tantra Loka, which was written by this amazing Shaiva Seid more than a thousand years ago. In chapter 13, he, he described 27 levels of grace, 27 levels of, of grace, which opens up from within an individual. And they're, they're, they're broken up into nine categories, but basically three. There's very intense grace, there's medium grace, and there's inferior grace. But they're all grace. And, and the inferior grace is somebody goes to visit a friend and they their friend is busy and they look in the bookshelf and there's a book on yoga and they just grab it because they've heard the word yoga they're not really interested but they just browse through the book and and then they're reading that and their friend goes oh can i borrow this book i you know that's grace that's a mild you know inferior level of grace we can say as opposed to full awakening and now some people get the most intense level of grace and awaken in an instant. Like, let's take Eckhart Tolle, for instance. He was about to commit suicide and suddenly had this thought, uh, who's killing who kind of thing? Who am I? And he had this epiphany and he came out in a state with what, what Kashmir Shaivism would be describing as just scratching the surface of Shaktopaya, where the space around him suddenly opened up. You'll, you'll, if you ever you heard any of the early talks of, of Eckhart Tolle, and I really liked his, his book, uh, what was it, The Power of Now. But if you, if you looked at those, you would find that he's always saying, can I be the space to entertain this problem? Because what he was experiencing was from his heart, his, his space wasn't just contained in his body. It was, it was now the whole room yogis real yogis uh you know have some yogis have their space which is again the, the whole ashram and when people come into that space they're really conversant with that people some yogis elevated yogis their space is the whole town others the whole country and others the whole the, our solar system and others the whole universe those yogis whose space from their heart is extending to the end of the universe they have received a very intense grace to have that that experience so the grace is there and the unfolding is there at every level you know and and somebody once asked swamiji when he was in america we used to drive around a lot we get stopped at the traffic lights and that and one day somebody asked swamiji after he'd been here th three months swamiji what do you think of america and what do you think of americans he said it's very interesting he said that uh, the the majority of people are God-fearing people. And he said, how so? He said, well, when we're driving around and we stop at the traffic lights and I look around and I see, he says, most of the people in their cars are in some way, shape or form thinking about God. That was a real revelation to me because you think everybody, you know, especially on the 405, you think everybody's thinking about killing the car in front of them, you know, but, or the person who just pulled in, but he said, no, People are thinking about God. They have a problem they're trying to solve, but there's a their their heart is directed in a in a, in a direction of of greater knowing. 
And um, I think that's true across the board, especially now, you know, especially now. What's happening in the world everywhere, you know. It's, does that answer that question? It's, Michael, yeah? Yes, I mean, I can... I, I could ask many follow-up questions, but you did answer my question. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Elijah. Jai Ma, nice to see you all. Thank you so much, George, for your brilliant presentation. It was very uh, enlightening. <laughs> um, I just had a, a question. Near the very end, you had mentioned this sort of, uh, how to say, sort of went in this state where we sort of come back to this place uh, where, where within us where we have this sort of the union of Shiva and Shakti again, right? And my sort of question is what, firstly kind of what, like my real question is what happens to this world in this, in this state, right? Because we often have the question like, like, uh, like with Advaita, right? Like, well, if we have this non-dual realization, it's non-dual, therefore there can't be this world of duality. And I'm wondering what the relationship in Kazmir Shaivism is between the world and um, the absolute, sort of what happens to it? Where does it come from? Where does it go? <laughs> it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. You see, You see yourself projected into the world and everything around you. It, for, for the enlightened yogi or yogini, and I always put that yoginis because they can get enlightened too. The, the enlightened yogi or yogini, um, what they start to feel is, is the space from which their, their heart is emanating, like the love of individuals suddenly keeps expanding out and out and out until they they encompass the world and they 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 see this immediate connection between their own microcosm their own body and what's happening in the whole universe it's not it's not separate what's 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 happened is the differentiation has gone all even that the objective world that we see around us the brick walls and that they they become everything around them because everything that's been manifested is manifested by Shiva and Shakti. Now they're, they're in a state where that uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's just amazing. I mean, Swami Lakshman, you gave examples of that. Somebody said that, how does, how does a yogi, he never talked about himself, you know, in the first person. Uh, that wasn't the way he would always try to remain hidden, but something happened and everybody was aware of it. One of his disciples had a, had a problem in the U S and, it, and they were sit down writing a letter to Swamiji and uh, about it. And the day they went to the, the mailbox to post a letter, they checked their own mailbox. There was a letter from Swamiji explaining everything they needed to do to solve that problem, which he must have written seven days before. Now that person made it very public. So somebody asked Swamiji in a very clever way, Swamiji, how does a yogi like do stuff like for somebody in another country, which is so physically distant. And he went the same way that they moved their little finger like that. He said the same way that they moved their little finger because that other country isn't separate from their body. 
they're experiencing a, a really universally elevated yogi is experiencing everything happening within them inside of them you know so that makes it and, and then it's not that they put attention on everything that's happening at once because but it's it's very you said it's difficult for people to understand that a, a yogi at that level doesn't have thoughts doesn't have vikalpa doesn't have sankalpa doesn't have any desire because they're at the level of shiva and shakti so everything that's happening is perfect in the world of shiva and shakti and those yogis they usually can't wait to leave the body they can't wait to drop their physical body and just merge it back into that ocean of consciousness from where they came out you know for them is, there's a there's a beautiful youtube clip where swamiji says yogis love death you know they're not a, they and, and you know sometimes that because of their prarabdha karma they're kept in the body because even yogis can't escape the prarabdha karma which they've come into this world with Jai Ma. very very lovely answer actually uh my mom just said she has a thought so uh <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this a little bit but i keep thinking of two quotes as you're talking um, and I believe they're both Mother Teresa, but she talks about, um, I don't know if she says it, but the irony I found that uh, it's basically talking about that when you love so much to it hurts till the point that it hurts, there's um, essentially like no more hurt, only more love. And, and I don't know if this was her or someone else, it might be a totally different person. But it, it was talking about like, Lord, like break my heart um, to the point, it's like so much to the point that the whole world falls in. And I was thinking about the concept as you're talking about grace and essentially what's already within and present. Um, that's tied to also openness, you know, like staying staying open as much as it feels like it's you know receiving or being given insights or a message or divine guidance it's almost like i feel like there's a point of it that it's just a, a part of just staying open yeah open I to receive and open to extent no it's, you see everybody everybody will approach the, their own spiritual path in in a in a unique way a way that's related to our karmas our past experiences the people that come into our lives our situations and for some people um the heart is the main point and for others the head some people really really uh their devotion is to intellectual knowledge and some they're, they, 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 the intellectual knowledge is okay, but I get a bit of a headache. I go a bit cross-eyed. I'm more of a heart person, and I want to just open up my heart. And both of those are completely legitimate for those individuals. But what happens eventually uh, on the spiritual path with true, true desire to find God, not, not to become a super intellectual or whatever, is that the heart really does open up and and this love just pours out for everything and everybody 
and you can't help that you know you can't help that happening because it's part of the the the, the path of devotion now there i i've been associated with swamiji intimately for for you know 40 years and i've been in the ashram and there are people here were with lifelong devotees i found that there were two kind of devotees there were there's the devotee who is devoted to their idea of devotion <laughs> okay <laughs> and they've, <coughs> they've <coughs> sorry excuse me <coughs> i was in delhi last week so i i still have half a delhi in my lungs so you find bashir Nechewala in office ah. on top of the printer. Yeah, there's two two files. Bashir Bashir. TK. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I <laughs> this is India. Um yeah, there's two there's what I've noticed in my perception, and it's not a, a judgment on anybody, but there are two kinds of people people that are devoted to their idea of devotion. You know, the red the Gospel of Ramakrishna, they've seen that, uh, you know, Vivekanand was really devoted. But Vivekanand, if you really, really, he was very intellectually devoted in the beginning until Ramakrishna opened his heart, you know. And until, in fact, until he came to Kashmir and went to Amarnath. <laughs> and at Amarnath, he had this divine experience. But it happened before that. He, um, before he went to Amarnath, he, he visited. Vivekananda actually stayed on one of the houseboats that was owned by Swami Lakshmanju's father. Swami Lakshmanju's father was a, 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 the first person to build houseboats for accommodation in Kashmir in the late 1800s. And Swami Vivekananda came and stayed on one of his houseboats, went and stayed in Swamiji's house and predicted in Swamiji's house to his parents that one day <laughs> a very great soul would be born in this house. And then he went to the ashram. And when he entered the ashram, Swami Ram saw him come in and Swami Ram, Swamiji's grandmaster, he's told the devotees quickly, recite Bhairava Stotra. And they recited these 10 verses of Bhairava Stotra. At the end of it, impromptu, Swami Vivekananda, who was, you know, master of Sanskrit, recited a verse. And, and after that, Swami Ram recited a verse which was the encapsulating the whole 10 verses which have been recited previously in Kashmir they still recite those verses nobody else does everybody else does the 10 verses but in Kashmir and there's no documentation in Vivekananda's uh, about any of that because there is no documentation of him staying in Swami Lakshmanji's parents house there's pictures of him on the houseboat there's pictures of him with Swamiji with a group of people around him Swamiji's father is standing in the background but Swami Ram told Swami Vivekananda, he said, you have to go to Kirabhavani, this shrine of the Devi, and your depression will be off. He knew that he was depressed. And he was, why was he depressed? Because he had gotten so much negative, uh, negative publicity after the uh, convention in Chicago, you know, the, the convention on, on universal religions. And uh, what happened there was all of these very, very influential, uh, you know, aristocrats were so overwhelmed and, and women who just fell in love with him immediately and they joined his band. They wanted to follow him. And of course, this freaked out these families that were the, these were the upper 
crustaceans, I call them, the upper echelons of, of, the, of American society, they, uh, they freaked out. And immediately they just put this blanket thing, oh, no, no, this is a religion. This is nothing here, nothing here. And Vivekananda got depressed about that. But some of the people, I think, I think one of the Rockefeller daughters followed uh, Vivekananda. And, you know, uh, so people, I mean, he was so charismatic, but he was depressed by the why this had happened. And Swami Ram said, you go to Kiribhavani, your depression will be off. This is documented in, in Swami Ram's ashram, which has gone on for, you know, the last hundred years. And he went to Kiribhavani and it, it was still in the state of ruin from the 500 years of Mughal um, destruction. They, the Mughals came in. And they basically just desecrated every temple and they, they threw out all the books and everything of Kashmir Shaivism. They converted and hundreds and hundreds of pundits to Islam. You still have, you still have Muslims in Kashmir that have pundit names you know, from, from three generations, four generations. But when he was there, he was walking around and the temple was in ruin. And he thought to himself, I have enough influence, you know, and these Kashmir is just finding its feet. I could actually get this place completely fixed up. It's, it has a divine feeling. And suddenly Mother Divine spoke to him and said, who are you? She said, I could build a seven story gold temple here right now, you know, in an instant. And basically said to him, you, you go on with your work, you know, they probably also said, don't be depressed, be a good boy, you know. That's the way Mother Divine really talks to her sincere children. And for, for Vivekanand, that was his first, he said, Shakti is alive. That was his real first taste of Shakti. The voice was a feminine voice. And from there, you know, the rest is history. He went to Amarnath Cave. Uh, he was directed to go there. I don't know whether by Swami Ram, but he was, every, every yogi wanted to go to Amarnath. And when he entered the cave, he went for three days. I think he was in, you you would know more about that than I do, especially Ambikananda um, will know the whole story of that. And after that, and 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 I think Ramakrishna predicted that uh, he would uh, he would leave his body shortly after he has this divine experience. And I think it was three months later that Vivekananda, at a young age, left his body. So you know that this this yeah this idea. I even I even lost the plot of where we started out on this. Uh, this little journey, but uh, what? Well, I think it was about opening the heart. I think it was about opening the heart, and that's well, uh, that. You said that there were two types of devotees: that there were the people who were devoted to their idea of devotion, and yes. what's the other uh, kind? The other kind is the devotee who uh, is he he's he he never reinterprets. His intellect is pretty much gone. And if the guru or he gets an instruction from above to do something, there's no question. It just, it, it, there's no, um, there's nothing in between. Or if I could do it this way, it would be better. And they just do what, what the instruction comes from within or from uh, whoever they've selected as their guru. You know, uh, that, that's the devotee who's, who is completely sold out on the level of the heart and has really put their own individuality aside. And, and, and those, those devotees usually, they get some kind of grace that happens in a very intense way. 
you know, uh, there were a few devotees around Swamiji who got that. There was one man for many years, all he did was he collected the shoes. When there was a big function here, a, a temple puja, he came out with his little sticks and he put up these sticks and he had all these numbers and everything and he just collected shoes. Hold on, I'm going to... Sir, name, number, which... Uh... No, no, just, just, he has to take this, this one, Bashir, to Nishat uh, Police Station. Just give it to the police station. This one, Nishat, to FRO office to Manzur. FRO. Bus. Okay. He was for Tantria. Yes. So, yeah, the, the, I think everybody sees people like that. There are some people that are just devoted without any rhyme reason. They're just devoted. And those are the people that you find in Swabaji's ashram. Those are the people that you would find would be sweeping up and just, they would see some dirt on the ground. They would st just automatically start organizing things. No, ch no chore was too big or too small. And the, the, the guy who used to do all the shoes, he, he was amazing. I, I always marveled at him. Even when there was a function, he would not go to the function. He stand there all day giving people numbers collecting their shoes and putting them on the ground. And he did that for years and years. And one day his family came and they said, Swamiji, Swamiji, our father, he didn't go to work. He didn't, he didn't come home. He was well, well off. He had a government job. His family were all settled. His kids were grown up. And he said, he didn't come home. He, he didn't, he, and then we would call the office. He didn't even go to the office. And Swamiji sat for a moment. I was there, he said, it's okay, it's okay. He'll come again, don't be worried. He'll come back. And three weeks or a month later, he turned up and he was just radiant. His face was just glowing. You couldn't, you couldn't look at him, you know, and uh, he came to the ashram and people were approaching him. He'd just walk away. He wouldn't talk to anybody. He wouldn't talk to anybody. And he sat down and when Swamiji came down, you could feel this incredible magnetism between the two, but they never conversed. They never said anything. And he never looked at Swamiji. He just sat there looking at the ground. And then he left and the next week he came back again. And what had happened, he'd gone to this sacred forest called Saduganga and he just meditated. His experience was so overwhelming. He couldn't, he couldn't be around people. And he was having Nimilana Samadhi, Unmilana Samadhi. And, and he's, it took him a month to stabilize it, to be able to come back and just be around people. And, uh, I remember one time, and I didn't even know he spoke English. I used to hand him, just hand him my shoes. He'd give me his numbers, you know, and, uh, and he did it with devotion. He, he, even when he knocked the pegs in the ground and got his ropes and everything he did, he, he, would, he would hand you your shoes like he was handing you flowers to go and do puja. It was just this amazing, amazing soul, you know, and uh, he, one, the next week he came to the ashram uh, I was there, we were waiting for Swamiji to come downstairs and uh, he came up to me, he's only a smaller, well, I'm taller than everybody, but he's a smaller person about this height. And he just hugged me in a bear hug and he looked up into my eyes and I looked down and his eyes were like just these infinite pools. And he said, George, George, just, he said, hold Swamiji's feet. That's all. No practice, nothing. Just hold onto his feet and don't let go. And then everybody was looking it was a bit of a scene and he completely sort of let go and he just sort of slunk away to a corner and sat by himself and everybody knew then to leave him alone and when swamiji came down um 
it was just this divine rapture between the two of them. It was just the, only the two of them were there in the act. There were a hundred people there that day, but I, I felt there were only he and Swamiji, there was the only two people in the ashram. And uh, he left. And shortly after that, the bliss was too much. And he set his family up completely and he left his body. No disease, no illness, no nothing. He just, he just wanted to merge in, in God consciousness. And, it, and that meant his prarabdha karma was finished. So he came from a family of, of really elevated people. His br elder brother was also a yogi. Um, uh, so it wasn't unusual that he had that experience. But his total practice was looking after everybody's shoes, the lowliest job you could do. And he was a Brahmin. He was a Kashmiri Brahmin. But it wasn't... I, I'd say that's what I mean by the person who has devotion of the heart and has no... Uh, no intellectual, you know, reservation. Mm. Online, after, yeah. Bilkul, Bilkul. Bilkul. Mubarak, Mubarak. Yibi, Nietzsche Wala, you covered? Demolish? Nietzsche, no, no. Nietzsche Wala room? Find a minute. Rhinosaur? We'll talk. Okay, okay. Koi baat nai. Yes, 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 yes. Gerbaji. Bilkulti. Sorry, that's the carpenter who's. Um, <laughs> it it sounds he, like Shiva's, uh, his, uh, his, in his expansive nature is pouring into your room now. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it gets busy. No, this, um, Vijay Da, who Usha knows, Marlene and Vijay, he has just given us the, he bought Swamiji's old ashram, which Swamiji was in from 1930s up to 1960. And he's just given it to the ashram and oh, uh, it's been not lived in for nearly 20 or 30 years. This is the carpenter who <clears throat> has done so many jobs around the ashram. I've worked with him for, yeah, for nearly more, more than 35 years. And uh, he's, uh, he's just, this, he's a Muslim from a local village, totally devoted to Swamiji, just, uh, you know, and uh, yeah. So I, I guess I, that, that was the, that was the answer to the questions of the heart, you know, and uh, this man too, he, when he was building, we were doing a building project in the ashram and every year Swamiji had this beautiful, beautiful pea, uh, pear tree. And every year at a certain point I had to, collect the pears before they got too ripe, wrap them in paper and put them in a box and they would ripen in the box and naturally. And this one year I was doing it and he said, leave those two pears. And my limited intellect thought, oh, the birds are going to get them. You know, so if I was devoted to the heart, I just would have left them and not thought anything. But I thought, oh gosh, Swamiji. And he said, no, leave those, leave those two pairs on the tree. And they stayed there for the next two weeks and ripened, but not one bird went and pecked them or touched them. That was just super ripe, ready, I mean, juicy, ready to eat. And one day the carpenter, we were doing this job and Swamiji called me. He said, what's wrong with Asadullah? His name's Asadullah. I said, I don't know, but he's been in a strange mood all day. <laughs> And Swamiji said, call him. I want to talk to him. So he came over to Swamiji and he explained something to Swamiji. It was all in Kashmiri. I didn't understand. And then Swamiji told me, George, pick those two pears, put them in a bag and give them to Asadula. So I picked the two pears. I put them in a bag. I gave them to Asadula. And uh, when I did, Asadula went, oh, hey, yeah. 
No, no. It, what I made out was she can't, she can't eat anything. She can't eat any fruit is out of the question. Swami just nodded and said, give her the pears. So he went off and what it turned out, what happened was his wife was diagnosed with severe stomach cancer and the doctors had given her just months or weeks to live. And, uh, you know, it was, it was sudden because he had cashmere. People don't go to doctors until the last minute. And, uh, Swamiji kept the pears on the tree. <clears throat> so he came back and she just gradually, gradually improved. And I, I sort of didn't get the full story. And then a week later, when she had to go back for the tests, she had absolutely no stomach cancer at all. It was completely gone. And she's still alive today. That was 1980. That was 1987, 88. And she's still alive. So, you know, that's, that's beyond my comprehension, but <laughs> and, and I witnessed I witnessed many many events like that, from the you know mundane to uh, you know the, to the completely divine. And Swamiji always remained hidden in those things. When Asadullah came and said, Swamiji, you know, like for a Muslim to bow to a, a Hindu is a big thing. And Swamiji would stop people from doing it. Was he would say, No, don't do that. Don't do that. And he would say, but, you know, and then he would say, no, I, I just prayed to Allah and Allah did this. Allah cured your wife. Or if to a Hindu, he'd say, I prayed to Shiva and Shiva did it. I just was the messenger for that, for your condition. He would never, ever attribute any of those events to himself. And, and so, yeah, we, we were on that thing. I, is that a clear distinction, though, between people? A, a lot of, a lot of myself included, I'm devoted to my idea of devotion. You know, I still have this remnants that if I do this, it'll be good for me. You know, but I learned I learned pretty quickly to to surrender when Swamiji would tell me to do something. I would do it the way he said. In the beginning, I would do it the way I thought I should do it because I'm an engineer, and he would tell me go and go and do this, just fix that thing, and I'd go there, and he'd do it, and he'd tell me do it, just use this and do that, and I'd be there thinking, God, if only I had power tools, if only I had this, and I'd think a better way to do it. And Swamiji would come after an hour, he says, haven't you fixed that yet? And I said, well, I'm trying. He said, no, did you do it the way I told you? I said, well, you know, he said, just, just, just while I'm here, just do what I told you. And I grabbed this old screwdriver and that, and it would just get fixed in a matter of minutes. And that was the thing of putting my intellect aside for all the ways that I, the knowledge that I had and just going with the flow, going with the instruction. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, I mean by that kind of devotion. And it, it, it comes, it develops, it grows. Um, and the intellectual devotion is also okay. People that are devoted to study because that's what they're, that's what um, gives them rasa. That's what gives them solace in their heart to, uh, to, to have a greater understanding of this whole system that I'm in, you know, going into the nitty gritty, the 36 tattvas. I mean, what could be more, you know, thing than uh, trying to understand 36 tattvas? And Swamiji would say, don't think that you're studying 36 tattvas. Think that you're studying yourself and how you function in the world because you're made of the 36 tattvas. So don't think this is a separate discipline where you're studying even Sanskrit. Don't think that you're just studying a language. 
when you're studying Sanskrit, you're actually studying the essence of your own speech and your own nature, your Parapashanti Madhyama and Vaikri levels of speech. Quite, quite profound and over, overwhelming your presentation today. Thank you very much for joining. I think it's yeah. 8.30 here. You these are, are, are aimed at ending. So, uh, and I thought you have you have your uh, start your. You look like you have a lot of uh, pe people requiring your attention <laughs> today. Yeah, it, it keeps happening. I get I get less meditation. It's funny. I'm in the ashram. I get less meditation done here, uh, <laughs> and I get a lot of work done. But that was my that was my job around Swamiji when I, when he asked me to come to the ashram and 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 could I come and do some work. Well, he asked me to come to the ashram the second week I was there, which was a privilege to be asked to come except on the public day. And I thought, oh, great, you know, I'm coming. He's asked me to come there. I'll be I'll be enlightened in a week, you know. Um, and I sat before him and he asked me all these questions of which I knew that. Oh, I knew he knew the answers. Um, for five minutes. Yeah, punch minute. You'll be dust minute ready. But I, um, so. <laughs> I he, he went through this whole thing and he said, and as soon as I said I was a civil engineer, he said, oh, so you know, do you know hands-on work? I said, yes. He said, oh, look, I, he leaned over and said, I have an old cow shed there that I want to demolish. I've just gotten rid of my cows and I want to build a haven shala there. I want to build a yagya shala. Could you do that? And I said, yeah, I could. He said, oh, I'd have to provide you with, uh, with tea and lunch. Is that okay? I said, <laughs> so, for I did the Miller Repa thing for for eight years, and in that demolishing and building and painting and everything like that, and I had time to attend the lectures. But as soon as the lecture was finished, he would say, "Don't you have work to do?" And I'd be racing off to do something. And for me, that was the that was my sadhana. That was my, um, you know, I, I think I had I had the wrong notion of why I was there. I wanted knowledge for power. I wanted to I wanted to know much more, but it was it was the wrong notion. And and when I finally gave up and I was just so happy to do all this work, then Swamiji said, Now I want you to transcribe all of my teachings, you know, because I had a little bit of a background in Sanskrit. So I spent after Swamiji left this world, I spent twenty years transcribing over seven hundred and eight eight seven hundred and fifty hours of English lectures. You know, and lectures from Sanskrit texts into English. I didn't do any Sanskrit translation. Swamiji did all that. I just typed out. I was a glorified typist who knew a little bit of, you know, how to read Devanagari and Roman, and um, that was that was the time I got to learn. You know. But up to that, I had to just I had to do all the menial chores, sweeping the dust, and doing that, which for me was. Very blissful, and I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. <laughs> Are these works that you have transcribed available uh, to the public? Yes, they are. Um, uh, Swami Rajanananda, we have a website. My wife Claudia, who's in the U.S. right now, uh, we have a, a website with um, it's called Lakshmanju Academy, and all of those. We've published about eleven books so far. We switched from edited books to the actual original transcriptions in uh, 2002 because we felt when I was going through them, I was thinking, gosh, listening to 
these original lectures in Swamiji's own voice really makes all the difference. It's like put, it puts the person there throughout the 70s and 80s. And uh, I talked with John Hughes and I said, you know, we should, we should stop editing Swamiji's work and just release the original transcriptions, sell the books, give the audios for free uh, as a free download so people can follow along and, and he, they can hear and read what exactly what was said, all the questions that come in. Um, it's not an easy subject, I will warn you. Kashmir Shaivism is very deep uh, intellectual understanding, but Swamiji kept saying that it's it's an understanding of your own nature. So at, at every point, there are these aha moments, like this makes sense. It makes sense because it's our own story, you know. And, and, and as I say, Kali, uh, Kali plays a very important role, especially in this last book that we just released, which is the fourth Anika of Tantraloka. There's a whole section on Kashmir Shaivism and the 12 Kalis. You know, Kalis and Karshini Kali is not only just uh, one Kali, but she manifests herself in 12 ways, which make up time. That's how time functions in, in our world, through the grace of Ma, dividing herself up into, into our different, four different levels of perception and four different levels of action and four different levels of our own understanding of our own being. And you get 12, but they're all wrapped in the one Kali who's there in Laguna Beach dancing on Sadashiva. So I'll finish with one thing. I want to finish with one thing because that, that someone asked the question and said, why is, why is Ma dancing on Shiva? Is he dead? She said, he's not dead. Look at his face. He's enjoying the bliss of the touch of her feet. And then she said, but, but she, she's very fearful. She has this huge sword with blood dripping from it. What, what, what should we do about that? Swami said, if Ma ever comes in your meditation, and you look, she, you see, she has the sword and she wants to cut your head. He said, you should do one thing. He said, you should put your head down like that and show her your neck. So she can just sever your head in one swoop. And the bliss that will come from that, you can't imagine. And he said, that will be Ma's grace. That will be Ma's grace to you. And if you're devoted to Ma, she'll do it. If you're really sincerely devoted, she'll come and she'll guide you at every step. And, uh, you know, that's, this is, this is her play. So Jai Ma. Jai Ma, Jai Ma, what up? So thank you, George G. And this has been a wonderful, a wonderful uh, uh, immersion, not only into the, the profound worldview and, and of, of, of Kashmir Shaivism, but also into the, into the, uh, one of our over the 30 years we've known you, our favorite thing is that no matter what you're talking about, your example always be some story or some election. He's like the living, of course, we say, oh, he's the living master, last living master, the, the recent living master of Kashmir Shaivism, a great saint, a, a, second, a great scholar. But he's like, he is the proof of, of Kashmir Shaivism. He's the example. He's like the lived, the lived, the lived tattva, the lived experience, you know. So uh, 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 to me, the stories are, I can't say more important, but for me, they're more important even than the philosophy, right? 
And I think Usha, like 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 Usha, you know, she talk, she tells stories of Milakshmi, and that's that's our understanding of 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 Kashmir Shaivism is stories of some Milakshmi. Really yes. quite amazing. Of course, so you've we've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours probably just telling, listening to your stories of Swami Lakshmi and other great saints. So George has been blessed by having met some of the great saints of this uh, this era, right? And 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 it's full of maybe one day he can. We can we can uh, grab him again, and and he can tell. Maybe there'll be a nice thing of storytelling with with George on the the lives of saints, Sami and other saints like that. Because that I think that's also really helpful. Because you know one of the things we talk about our our, our seminary, our sub theme is that we're applied theology, right? So it's not just theological research and study and academic understanding and and the philosophy, but it's like the of course how to apply it to our life. But but it's it's lived. It's real. This is life, not just ideas. This is the real life, and so the lives of the saints and and uh, is 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 I think the the most the, the most juicy part of it, the proof of the whole thing. The proof of the whole thing, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I feel I feel doubly blessed to have mm -hmm. been fortunate enough in my karma to spend so much time with Swami Lakshmanju, and and he's very much still alive, and he was the last the last link in an unbroken oral tradition so and during his lifetime he had darshan of all of the great saints of the past especially abhinavagupta mm -hmm. the last darshan he had of abhinavagupta the saint who died you know left, left this world we can say more than a thousand years ago was 1980 you know? and he admitted he said abhinavagupta came to me and, and gave me some very important verses for you to recite mm -hmm. and uh that, that that was just that was just you know part and parcel of his life and his nature incredible incredible all right george thank you thank you we'll see you in a few weeks couple weeks yes my, yes, my yes. lord shiva's grace yes and i i think i have uh, i have a harmonium ready and uh i have a drum okay. i'll try to procure a, a guitar so we can uh, oh that'd be fun Yes, well, like really, old times, like old times, exactly, exactly. And I know. I even know the songs we need to sing. We've done this so many times. Yeah. Oh yeah, Shiva Shiva Mahadeva. How can we not do that? You know? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I'm excited. Very excited. God bless everybody, and may Ma's grace continue to shine upon all of you. Very much. So thank you, thank you all our all the students for their kind attention, and uh, this will be our last class through July. Um, we'll be back end of July and we'll see Usami Chaitananda will be here. So how to arrange, he'll be speaking during most of the summer. So we'll see how we'll fit ourselves into around his satsang. Um, he'll be speaking on Saturdays, uh, usually a Saturday night. So we'll post those also. Um, so, okay. Very, very, yeah. very wonderful. Jai Ma. Hara Hara Mahadev. Sri Guru Maharaji Ki Jai. Mahamai Ki Jai. Sumi Lakshanju Ki Jai. This meeting is being recorded. Oops, sorry. The recording has stopped. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Oh. Uh, Swamiji, I hope you'll you'll be like the the pundits that George was talking about and do some uh, some pujas and yagas on our behalf. We shall we shall do exactly Thank that. Thank you. Jai Ma, Jai Ma, Adio. Jai Ma. So some, I think uh, George, if I gave you power, you'll have to end the meeting, I think, on your side. I can do that.
Yeah, I think it's a matter of ending.